Hi guys, I'm Jamie Oliver and I'm on A Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper, the Senior Advisor and Chief Brand Officer at Edelman. With over 35 years of business experience in brand, creative and personalised strategy. On Touch of Truth, you'll find wisdom from some of the most respected, trusted and successful people on the planet. And it might just make you a little more successful and a lot happier. So, Jamie Oliver, welcome to Touch of Truth. Thank you very much, Jackie Cooper. It's always a pleasure to see you. So, we're going to get into some stories. Yep. I'm so lucky to have been by your side in the last four or five years. Yep. People see the Jamie in the kitchen and the pot and pan and the, the chat and chop shows and they're hugely successful. Good times, bad times. Yep. <laughs> still laughing. Quite a lot. Still laughing, still happy, still here. Still got a lot to do. And still full of love and heart for what you do. So I'm so excited to have the chat. Thank you. Touch of Truth is called Touch of Truth because we tell the truth. And one of the things I've really learned working with you is that actually you do always tell the truth. Sometimes that backlashes <laughs> and kind of bites you on the arse. I'm a really bad liar, by the way. <laughs> and lying is exhausting. So just don't bother going there. Yeah. Is that what you tell your kids? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do. But it is, I think it's, I, you know, I think, you know, there is a place in the world for white lies if it's, you know, helps to make other people happier. But, you know, yeah, big clangers, lies. I mean, I think that's one of the, the tricks of having a long career, actually, in media, because you'll go through waves of journalists and papers liking you or absolutely hating you. But regardless of those two very strong emotions, if they know you're a liar, you've got no chance. Yeah. Um, never lie to them. Yeah. Never. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, fight them or, or, or come back at them or do whatever you've got to do. But like you lie to them. And if you get known for that, it's all over. Hello, honesty. How are you right now? At this time, in this place, in your life, business and personal We've always told the truth and there's been some times where you've had heartbreaking downs and you've also had amazing euphoric highs. Mm. So with everything that's gone on, the first question on this podcast is how are you today? How are you feeling personally, oh. professionally? How are you? Do you know what? I am happier than I've been in a long, long time. Um, I'm more comfortable than I've been in a long, long time. Um, I'm super grateful for the people that I have around me, including yourself. Um, and uh, currently, there's no sort of alarms going off, major curveballs, life dramas, you know, absolutely touching wood. So I think like, you know, definitely I've earned the place to be grateful for all things good, family, work colleagues who are very precious as well um uh, you know if you're going to spend all those hours at work for the love of god make it somewhere that you have friends or you've got like-minded people or you have heart and soul in i mean i know people have got to earn a living but you know I, i've just come back from filming in tunisia which is the most beautiful country like extraordinary like a fraction of the price of anywhere else in europe and like i'm telling you the food the culture unbelievable and multiple times people said to me, we are very poor, but we want for nothing. And it just rang through my body like hairs on the back. And, and I know it's easy to say that, 
But we live in such a fast and furious world, little old England, little old Britain. Like, we, you know, like your phones are full of things that you think you need, want, have to be at. It's a life of comparison right now. And I went to Tunisia and I just thought, you know what? You know, that, that, whatever that is, that soulfulness and that simplicity, like, like you know, that's normal. You know, do you know what I mean? Like they yeah. want for nothing. And, and um, it's very un-British to say that. It's very un-British. I love that phrase, a life of comparison. And I think that with everything that's going on economically and everything that's going on with society and all the hardships that we've got, that's so true. That, that, that rings so true, that phrase. And I think maybe some good will come out of this. Like if you go somewhere like Tunisia and you see the basics, I read something yesterday that uh, someone circulated on social that they have worked in a hospice and they collected the five sentences that were most said by people at the end of their lives. And none of them were, I wish I had more stuff. <laughs> it was all about relationships, all about love, all mm. about family, all about just achieving the basics. Mm. And you're obviously a dad of five. How do you feel about the planet and the, and the world when you think about having that experience in Tunisia and then your kids are growing up in this world, in this society? Um, I mean, my look, if you, my little brain is really peculiar and very, very, very emotional and romantic. And um, uh, there's a lot going on upstairs that I try and get out through the medium of cooking. And that's a pretty good medium. I mean, I'm blessed. It's much easier to look at the whole of life through a, a pot and a pan than <laughs> any other craft, you know. Um, I've kind of come to the realisation that my last 25 years has been essentially um, anthropology. It's been all, every moment, every good decision, every good emotion, thought that cued a series or a campaign. It's all about allowing yourself to be susceptible to people at large. And I, I don't know if it's weird or wonderful or, or odd, and, and I, I don't want to portray sort of like an odd Jamie, but like when I go to bed at night, you know, I, I, I say thank you and I'm grateful to something. Uh, and, and, but like, I, I think quite galactic about stuff and there's a lot to be done. And, and, and I think we're extraordinary animals, not humans, animals. And we have patterns that throughout history we've proven that we succumb to and, and um, all those typical emotions of kind of greed um, all the stuff, you know, all the stuff in the Ten Commandments that, you know, regardless of the religion, are pretty, you know, ring true to this day, you know. So I just, I just think that aside, you know, now more than ever with technology, like kindness, thoughtfulness, setting your life up and your day up to acknowledge that you're fallible and that you're forgetful and, and that you've got a lot to worry about, but trying to remind yourself through a bit of chalk or a bit of pencil or, or an app on your phone just to text mum and say I love you and, and sort of like try and be a better person and um, surround yourself by people that maybe have the same or higher expectations than you because we all have days where you think oh fuck it I massively think now more than ever specifically now in, in cost of living crisis I've seen firsthand where the, you know, there's more profound words, but when you take those basic utilities from a human, from a family, from a mother, from a father, food, water, security, safety, when you take those away, 
stuff gets real. It goes medieval. It goes feral. Mm. And I've seen it in many, many versions in the last 25 years. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in East LA where there's food deserts and more people are killed through automatic weapons there in that postcode than in the whole of American conflict in the world. Radical within a postcode. Battle based on postcode, not religion. Based on what section of that part of town you come from. Really, you know, so like, and I use that as an example. It's not a specific example, but like I, I apply that to, you know, at the moment I'm fighting for those 800,000 kids between the free school lunch kid, where to get a free school lunch, you have to earn less than £7,400 a year as a household, not as a person, as a household. And there's a gap between there and universal credit, which averages out about 12 grand per household. It's structured different, but there's basically 800,000 kids from really poor family who are coming in probably from cold homes without a breakfast, going to school and, and presumed to sort of do well. So that's, that's my current, but it's all the same emotion, right? It's like, like through, through my business and through cooking and through the shows that we make, we do the best that we can to, to, to try and bring out optimism and, and joy, no matter what budget. And, um, and obviously the school dinners kind of kids thing has been on my agenda for a while now. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the campaigning a bit because people see the Jamie in the kitchen and the pot and pan and the, the chat and chop shows and they're hugely successful. What do you do in this weird brain of yours, as you described, to balance out the pain that you feel when you see that kids can't get food. I mean, you've obviously decided to try and use your profile yeah. and use your ability to reach people to campaign for it. Why do you think it's even having to be campaigned for? What's What do you feel like now you've been on this for a bit and you've been reaching out and things aren't changing fast enough? Why isn't it changing fast enough? And what kind of response have you been getting? Um, oh, I mean, that's big selection of questions i mean first of all it is, it is a pain it's an actual physical pain that i feel when i go to school and i see these sort of i i, I truly believe that a, a a developed kind democracy is based on how bad bad is and 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 how bad the, the least well off is so i believe that in a moral capacity and an ethical capacity but like if I talk maybe more the language of politicians or certain newspapers, um, we're more productive and we make more money as a country. It's better for UK GDP, right? So, you know, the cleverest minds will tell you that as a fact. So, so it's not charity, it's an investment. And it's an investment in a kind of robust rainbow of a community as a population that can take part in all facets of the jobs required right if you look at the, the the metrics if you follow a child from a poor neighborhood more than likely will be overweight overweight or obese you know two to three times more so than their their well-off counterparts right they'll do less well at school their educational attainment will be lesser um they'll get less paid jobs they'll have more days off absent within their adult working life they'll cost the nhs more and they'll die seven to eleven years younger than their sort of middle class classic british counterpart so 
that's like quite powerful, big statistics, but that actually has a cost to our society. And, and so every, everyone loses through that. The richest, the, the classic middle class, we all lose through not taking responsibility for that. What is that? Unpick that. So if you unpick that, I could give you some top line stuff like, well, they tend to be more ethnic. So first generation immigrants. OK, fine. This country thrived on those for, for many centuries. Um, but so that's that's kind of a top line. If you look at the mortality rate of covid who died, it's, it's the same map. It's the same map. OK. And then if you sort of say, well, probably the most in my mind, probably one of the most powerful, I mean, I think we need to reignite whatever it is and, and sort of enshrine it. But one of the most powerful beliefs of being British is the theory that if you put your head down relentlessly, no matter where you come from, you can go anywhere. Oh, like I'm, someone, someone cleverer can say it better. But like, okay, let's just say that again. Like, no matter where you come from, no matter what life has thrown you, your parents or your ancestry, like no matter where you come from, if you can just put your head down, master something, doesn't have to involve the left brain or the right. It could be carpentry. It could be chopping board maker. Like master something. If you put your head down, keep working, be kind. Like you can have a life worth living that, that gives you the car, the house, the, the sustainability or what stability that you need, right? Like that, that has to be like the most important thing or one of them in this country. But yet that map that we talked about, the COVID map, you, you've seen this. There's a, yeah, there, the there's a, there's like a, a graph, there's a, yeah, there's a gold plated graph that I printed because it was just hard data and very emotionless. And I tried to make it more emotional and it proves from the national measurement program that if you're poor, you're two to three times more likely to be overweight or obese and, and have that life that I explained. Um, and that's only got, that's three years out, that's four years out of date, that graph. And it was already bad. Um, it's, it's, it's un, the jump that that graph has had through COVID is phenomenal. So you've got COVID, you've got an already an imbalance. So the government of, in the last year called it levelling up, right? Well, we've been on this for like fucking 15 years, right? So you're going to level it up. Great. That's a great ambition. But then COVID came and that graph got, it needs more levelling up. And now we've got cost of living with these 800,000 kids going to school. When you've got these patterns, look, I'm, I'm no expert in this field, but I, I believe this is, it's the, the force that in real life keeps people down injustices i yeah. think it's like built so into sure. the system and there's and and there's systemic injustices that i think the last few years have brought to bear social inequality which is basically social inequality occurs when resources in a given society are distributed unevenly and by the way like that i don't think that that gives anyone the right to call me a socialist cuz i believe in business and I think I am a version of a capitalist. You know, why can't doing good be good business? There's loads of proof points of that, by the way. Um, but the crack of old money and the crack of the flow of old money is what kind of suppresses the food industry to invest in change um, uh, and, and the environment and, and, and many other industries. But, but time and time again, um, we are seeing great businesses prove that doing good is good business. 
we, we have a ton of data about that. I mean, it's in the 80s, percentage of the 80s that consumers are saying around the world, look, while everything's broken, which you've so eloquently outlined, can business please step up into the, into the place that NGOs and government can't do things fast enough? And I want to be a belief-driven buyer. I want to believe that if you stand for something, I can commit to you more and I'll pick you. You look at Unilever run by Alan Jope, he makes it really clear that every single person that runs his portfolio of brands has to have impact and purpose baked into. And it's not about saying it, they differentiate that it's about doing. So mm -hmm. I do think we see brands stepping up and companies stepping up because not only do they have to to make the planet better, but they also need to to make consumers want them. And they're employing some of the best thinkers and minds on the planet, right? right. Um, you know, it's... Um you know, it's hard to get the best minds and thinkers into charity when it's not incentivized in the same way and, and government alike, you know, and, and I think in government, you know, I've, you know, I've been through the ringer now for like 17 years. It's utterly disappointing so often, really, really upsetting. You'll come out of a meeting with a minister, senior minister, and you're just like, he or she has not got a clue what they're talking about. I haven't Googled you for a while because we just worked together, but I Googled you on the way here today and thought, what's going on? And I went to 364 comments, and I think probably a lot of them were negative. And I thought, how, do you read them? How? Because one of the things that I really wanted to touch on is that you come to work every day, and I've seen you at some of the toughest things that you've gone through mm. in the last few years. And I say to everybody, this man hasn't got one ounce of bitterness in him. You're not angry. I mean, you're angry about campaigning and you want to make a difference. But as an individual, you're not angry. You're not bitter. You come to every meeting. You're so creative. You're so positive. You've got so much heart and love. And you've got big love as your kind of hand, handwriting around the, the office. How do you not get to be bitter? How do you come with that big love? Because I grew up in a pub. <laughs> and you serve people that are assholes. And, but they're not really, they just had a bad day and, um, life's tough on people and like, you can't, you know, it's almost like you can't fight fire with fire. You have to fight fire with joy and hope. And I have no, look, A, I'm dyslexic. So like I do read a certain amount of comments, but if they, if they go in negative, I can't read them because it doesn't help me do what I do. The Truth Test. A few questions on truth from a self, human and brand perspective. I'm going to move to the truth test. So this is the only part of the podcast where we ask everyone the same question. It's been really interesting. My first question is, what is the biggest gamble you've ever taken? Marrying my wife. <laughs> and it paid off real good. Dramatic pause there between the first yeah, bit and the second bit. Probably, I think probably <laughs> that I think we got married quite early, and sort of the normal for my age was probably a few years down the road. But I mean, it probably felt like the most emotional, frightening, joyful, wonderful, scary thing to do. And um, here we are, twenty-three years later, still together, amazing woman. And uh, we've been through a lot together and, and, and I'm blessed that, you know, we, I've been going out of her since I was 18 years old and I definitely couldn't have done 
the things that I've been able to do without that kind of, you know, that that grounding and and um, I, I chose well. I was really lucky, and 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 uh, uh, I think probably that's the biggest moment, really. Plus, she could have said no, <laughs> but she was kind of like giving me all the signs. To be fair, like, I didn't, you know. I think she loves yeah. being married to you too, Jamie. <laughs> it's a brilliant answer. You'll probably get a really nice dinner when you get home when this comes out. No, that definitely that. won't happen. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be cooking. <laughs> My next question is: What's the worst meeting? I'm thinking about all those ministers, but anyway, what's the worst meeting? that you've ever been in and why? Probably the worst meeting I've ever had was when I went and lived in LA and we just got an Emmy for running a show called Food Revolution, living in the most unhealthy town in America, which was called Huntington, West Virginia. And I'd literally gone from public enemy number one to getting the key to the town and like transforming all these school foods and like getting local restaurants up and local food markets up from nothing. And literally, if you live there, you get ill. Um, and then we went to L.A., which is the second biggest school district in, in America, 1.2 million kids, and um, every day, to be fed. And um, they had, how can I say, um, an, a politician that was head of all the schools that was past his best. So we couldn't get a meeting with him. And we were working in multiple schools, and he kicked us out of any, working in any schools. So then we went to independent schools. And we were there for like two months before he found a way to pull some funding from them if they didn't get rid of me. And I was literally got rid of uh, with, by the police out of the school. The only way I could get to him was you can go every Tuesday to the head of the school district and you can pose questions. They don't have to answer. Wow. But I didn't just go on my own. I went with a full crew, like jibs, steady cam, rigging, right? And I asked a question. And I built this patchwork quilt of questions that in, in its entirety just totally explained his, his uh, lack of ability to run the school district. Um, and, and I finally broke him. Finally broke him. And he was so angry with me. He just wanted to kick my ass. And um, he just literally tore me and you backside like you can't believe. He stripped me down and he just like battered me. And every word that came out of his mouth, I'm going, that's great telly. That's great telly. We need to hear this. this is the truth coming out. That was his truth, just like vomiting out of his mouth as he sort of like, I mean, I, I was, I was, <laughs> I was the victim, but like, it was the best, worst bollocking I've ever had in my life. Who's the best person you ever met in real life? And why were they sort of inspirational to you? Is there someone that you could think of who's like, they really changed? I mean, we're sitting in the Delia Smith meeting room. Hmm. I know that you have so much love for Delia, but who, who did you meet in this amazing journey where you think, wow, that was a moment where I kind of shifted gear? <sighs> Do you know, like, one of the most sumptuous, wholesome people that have been uh, like a constant source of inspiration to me is Paul Smith or Sir Paul Smith as he rightly deserves to be called um, the fashion designer he used to be a customer of mine it was a Sunday and he was in with two friends and his wife and they asked to see the chef and I'd made these raviolis and I remember it because it was like borage and stinging nettles and spinach and ricotta and parmesan very simple but you know gorgeous 
foraged ravioli and, and they, they were just very elegant and delicious. And his, his wife, um, Pauline, had ordered it and then asked to see the chef. So I went out and spoke to them and was just chatting because, like, Paul's just the nicest. He's all about soaking up everyone's vibe and, and curious of every age group. And that's part of his genius. And, um, and then it asked me sort of like, you know, what was going on in my life and this, that and the other. And, and I just mentioned um, that I bought my first suit. And he goes, oh, who is it by? I said, oh, Paul Smith. And they all started laughing. And I said, well, what's so funny? He goes, oh, thank God. I'm Paul Smith. I went, no, you're not. He went, yes, I am. I went, no, you're not. He went, yes, I am. I thought they were laughing. I thought he was like, yeah, what's the chances? And I made him get his credit card out and show me his name. And I went, no way, really? And then we had this whole chat about like suits and why I bought it. And, 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 um, and also his senior tailor was at the table as well. So it's like all like the little details and the stitching and like, I've, you know, that what he did to that suit and like the little extra bits and the jets and the lining and, and, and the humor and, and the cut and, and like that's, you know, I've tried to apply that thinking to recipes and cookbooks and, and all sorts of things, but we, we became unusual friends, I guess. He actually came to my wedding and, and, and didn't really know me, bless him. Um, and, um, and I've sort of seen him every until, well, actually until before COVID. So I need to get back on it, but, um, I used to see him every six months. And, and we both scamper around in an em- empty office of his and struggle bizarrely to make toast and, and cup of tea <laughs> without any amazing PAs to sort of who know where everything is. But um, like he's kind of like, he's the most sumptuous, wonderful, kind man and um, is an incredible um, kind of North Star about soulfulness, the soulfulness of, of product and you know like he's not about the money he's about no, he's like craftsman. yeah I, mean, see, I think i can see why because you've both got love in what you create there's so much more than just doing the thing there's love to it lovely man and i'm grateful for all of that vision of truth can you see the future can you change the future now So something about the vision of truth and how you see tomorrow. One of the things that I absolutely love about you is you do the cheeky, gorgeous, joyful cook. And then you've got this passionate, passionate heart and you just don't give up. And people should never underestimate the tenacity that you have matched with a huge amount of information, which... You've learned stuff. You've so made up for the fact that you didn't do well at school because you learn every single day and you take that fact to help campaign. How, how do you see the future? What's your vision of, of, of your tomorrows over the next couple of years, given all the things that you've been talking about today? I mean, I, I, I remain hopeful for the future because, you know, the youth hopefully will throw up some incredible souls that that have different standards and different beliefs and 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 want a happier healthier fairer place to live safe place to live um uh we we started a charity about five or six years ago called bite back 2030 and and i and i literally just yesterday watched one of the young kids that we took in at 16 so what we do is we work for the kids just to be clear, so we I, we set up an organisation of experts 
in the field of environment and health and politics and you know businesses and we work for the kids the kids set the agenda it's really interesting and our job was like to take the essence of what the kids were were unhappy about and most of these young ambassadors there's like a hundred of them from all around the country come from often the free school lunch kids right so they're the voice of the people the voice of the beneficiaries and the voice of hope uh, and the voice of what bad looks like um and they're they're all pretty amazing but but i've seen we've seen too many adult journalists find chinks and then like like sort of delve into their weaknesses and that kind of compromises what they're saying so we arm we work for them we arm them with all the research and we try and i saw one of these kids doing a speech in in parliament like if if he ain't going to be a minister i don't know what like that kid is living breathing visceral change like like eloquence personified like bright as a button he's still a kid like we got no chance like you start pumping out a couple of hundred of those and and it's all going to be good like being a politician is not glamorous like so you you need like you like that you know when that poor soul in south end got got murdered like it was very obvious that he was one of the good ones like regardless of politics, it all came out in the wash, didn't it? We no one realised how lucky they were to have him. God bless his soul. And um, they are out there. There's just not enough of them. And and so you know, I'm I'm hoping that um, that we'll put child health and, and education first again, and realise that's the most progressive thing we can do as a country. Um, I'm sure that that's the right thing to do. I'm sure um, for every reason. Um, to be British, whatever that means, to be, you know, stable, sustainable, successful as a country, a tiny, tiny, insignificantly small country when you're looking at the might geographically of the rest of the developing world. So, um, yeah, that gives me hope. Actually, the Bite Back 2030 kids genuinely gives me hope. Yeah, Gen Z give me hope. We know that they are going to be so impactful we've got our first gen zer in the senate in the us now a democrat uh in florida so they're now beginning to be in positions of change and they want change everything that we found in our data they want change they won't settle and they want the basics i mean change is about the basics so everything that you've talked about change is not about aspirational or ridiculous wastage it's about protecting the planet protecting their families protecting their financial security, protecting their safety in all of these areas. And they're going to be kicking our butts to make sure that we make fundamental change. So I love what you said about those bite back, young, fervent kids. I, I looked at those, I went, I can't do that. I couldn't do that as well. And I'm thrashed. I'm like beaten up and thrashed and been through the mill a few times. Like I, I cannot do that as good as he just did it. Wow. It's um, and also like, you know, there's lots of reference points that I have as a superpower from my childhood. Like, you know, we came from a working class family that became classically middle class. But like the bike back kids, they were free school lunch kids, most of them. You know, like so that that lens is a really important lens because they're looking in and out. And it kind of goes back to everything that we've talked about in this, you know, podcast, which is about. Could you, can you hope, you know, they say you can, but can you actually, 
So like, you know, when you see those bite back kits, look them up, look them up online, like have a, all of those little videos and stuff are flopping about, you know, have a little look and you kind of go, all right, maybe things are going to be all right. Touch of truth. A story that affirms a personal impact on the planet and people because of the truth they shared. So on Touch of Truth, one of the things that we do is share a story of someone who's really had impact on your life and maybe helped change your life or change the planet together or change your journey together. And who comes to mind for you when you think about that? Oh, could be a number of people. I think like my old best mate, Jimmy, you know, I think would be a good one because in a way we were both in the same boat at school struggling, uh, not finding focus and, um, you know, looking back, which, you know, when you can look back over a number of years, I've just done a school reunion just last week. And it's sort of an amazing moment when you pinch yourself. Um, like I had cooking, cooking saved me and he had animals and that's literally saved him. And, and so when I was working in the kitchens at the weekend, he was working in the local zoo. If I want to go to anyone about farming on the planet, and like, like macro de- detail of like soil and pH levels and kind of like fertility and good or bad and the ugly. Like he's your man. Like he's thrashed. He's been everywhere, done it, smelt it, felt it. Like I don't know anyone on the planet that's travelled as much as he has and seen the most uh, diverse range of farming methods. Like literally from bugs to you know cattle. Like so he's. Provides livestock to some of the great and the good of the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, well he does the, the rare breeds. But, he, you know, he's got an incredible zoo now, which is his sort of part of his business. But also, like, you know, he's a t- he does like 180 days filming a year. Like, I do 50. Like, he's a pro. You know, he's like super good. You, me and Jimmy went and made a trip up to Scotland a few yeah. months ago. <laughs> yeah. And you told me on that very long train journey, that you and Jimmy were put in the corner of the classroom by the teacher and told that you were special needs kids. Yes. Couldn't read. No. Well, and you were both two boys who were mates then and gorgeous mates now, put in the corner of the room. What would you say to that little kid now where you've published more books than just about anyone except for JK Rowling and that teacher who put you in the corner of the room and you're making so much impact everywhere, what would you say now? Oh, it's a really, I mean, it's sort of quite an emotional thought, really, because I think, look, I was really lucky because food had already saved me by then, and I, and I mean that. So at that age, when we were extracted into special needs and put in the attic of the school and pulled out of every class, which in a boys' school, full of testosterone is like, oh, thick kids, you know, they used to, you know, but it, it, it didn't bother me at all, but it did some of the others, right? I went home at the weekend and my pocket money was earned through cooking and I could cook. I knew already by 12, 11, that no matter what happened, this is the joy of cooking, by the way, or any craft, right? Like I knew, I'd started cooking when I was eight. I knew that I could have a fruitful, even if it was average, I knew I could have a fruitful, happy, sustainable, stable, joyful job running a pub, cooking food, serving the community at 12. 
So that saved me. And I mean that with so much honesty. Like, so when I felt like a thick kid, like, like I just, why can't I, why can't I just learn like everyone else? It's like really weird. Like, like, and then you're, I didn't even know how to deal with it. You had no extra time on exams or anything like that. It was just, I basically just, I, I really screwed up school. And like parents evenings were like awful and weekend working was joyful. So, but so I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, I was lucky. And, and Jimmy conversely was like, he was like, literally like he, he had pretty much his own zoo in his house. I'd go around his house on my BMX. There'd be, there'd be a hundred kids, brownies and scouts, right? Leaving. <laughs> and he had like 350 different animals in there. His poor mum and dad had every ounce of the garages and outbuildings all taken up with cages and tunnels and polecats. That didn't even include the birds or, or the fish. <laughs> if we did, it would be in the thousands. Right. And then he was running, like he was working at Linton zoo and now he has a zoo. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, like, but I, I, but, but what's really, can I be really honest about that moment as well? If I'm really honest, the other kids in the class came from much poorer families. We were already at the beginning of what we would call middle class, right? Me and Jimmy, like our mums had, like she was running a gym. His dad was a builder. My, my dad ran a shitty pub and it became a great pub. Like the other kids came from the really poor parts of the area it's that pattern again that we spoke about like true as daylight and and it's that so it's that sense of like lack of value which we all have the we all own that ability and that's where moments in time and particularly mentors and it could be a teacher or a job that just goes no you're not you're not useless no 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 look dude like look look, this thing called education it was kind of invented by some monks a few hundred years ago do you know what i mean like it wasn't god given it wasn't genetic like like it, we invented it to make most people all right and most people don't all learn the same way. So you're right, like, dude. I mean, like- this is so close to my heart. We've had Kate Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson's daughter, on the podcast, and Sir Ken was my hero and then became one of my dearest friends. And his brilliant TED talk and then his RSA talk where he says it's actually education based on a Victorian manufacturing system where we just literally need to be belted out like yeah. sausages. And uh, for people like us, our brains don't work I missed that way. out on spending time. I met him once and it was a joy, but I would have liked to have had a fraction of the time that you spent with him. But, but what is really, really upsetting is like his approach was so clear, profound and revolutionary that in his prime of doing that, then there should have been a revolution in education. And we're so, in modern day British life, we're so passive. Everything's slowly, slowly catchy monkey. Nothing, do you know what I mean? Like that, the problem is it's just so noisy and so constant. And we're just, when was the last time you were surprised with joy? in government I mean really like it's never <laughs> I, w- so, I would so, say surprise but then when you added with joy then you lost me well the, the, the surprise but you know the, the thing is is like Ken's approach was about having a malleable approach that could make everyone find their inner value to find that future adult that could hopefully build themselves to a job where they contribute and they can absolutely be able to be in a position to be a great citizen or, or parent, right? Not, not feel like a fucking loser 
And that's the problem, excuse the language. Like, there's so many kids that feel like that. And potentially that could have been me. But honestly, that weekend job saved me. I've seen it. I've seen those kids. I've seen those kids of all ages that feel like a fucking loser. It's, it's, a, it's crippling. It's crippling. And by the way, it's, there's no need for it. There's nothing, you know, they're all able to be brilliant. Um, so I think, you know, part for me, like, that's why school, I mean, I left school hating it and um, resenting it. My biggest enemy was the written word, black and white. As I speak, you know, as I speak to you as the second most published person in Britain in all history. So it's, so I, I think like, you know, I look now thinking like the best bang for your buck as a taxpayer, you know, to, to change the trajectory of a country in all elements of the rainbow, productivity, GDP, if that's what rocks you, creativity, the arts, like, you know, soulfulness, craft, you know, apprenticeships, you know, being a happy, safe, gorgeous place and learning from all our best bits and worsts as a funny little island that sort of, you know, had its moment like many other countries as an empire, you know, like we've got a lot to offer, but, you know, like the best place to spend the money, invest it is teachers, schools. Damn right, man. Definitely. Like they, they're so, they're like fatigued. I've been through 13 education secretaries in 17 years. If I changed my head chef that often, we would have been bankrupt years and years ago. So I think, you know, like, you know, we all owe it to Ken to, to, to cobble together the best of his values and, and sharpen the pencil for the now, which is, to be honest it probably doesn't need to be sharpened because he was bang on point you know he was on point but i'm not sure that there's enough change it's the same as you we we need more change so maybe things are going to be all right jamie oliver because we have you and you keep bashing your heart out there every day for the joy of food and the joy of standing up for those kids who don't have enough people to stand up for them we're so lucky to I've had the time with you today. I've loved working with you. I love that you have so much good heart, good soul and passion for every day you bring it on. So thank you for being on. Thank on you. The well, I'll keep working at it. <laughs> it's work in progress. But thanks for having me. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper. A new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. Follow us at Touch of Truth Pod.